Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Okay, it's my great pleasure to host um, this session in the AMI Libraries series of conversations in Islamic ethics. And we have with us um, a friend and guest, Professor Anwar Eman from the University of Toronto. Um, Professor Eman is Professor of Law and History, Canada Research Chair in Islamic Law and History, and Director of the Institute of Islamic Studies. Welcome, Professor. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, brilliant. No, it's, it's great you could join us. Okay, so this, this series um, aims to introduce, um, you know, and discuss different approaches and contributions to Islamic ethics, you know, very widely and broadly conceived. And so before we get to get into speaking about some of your um, contributions, you know, many, many contributions over the years, but focusing on your contributions to Islamic natural law, or, um, you know, framed around your and work um, in 2010, Islamic natural law theories. Now, before we speak about your work in particularly, you know, thinking about the relationship between law and ethics in Islam, you know, because as I said, you know, we want to highlight the diversity of methodological and disciplinary approaches towards ethics in Islam. So sometimes we associate ethics with, you know, the akhlaq, philosophical and um, traditions, the virtue ethics, the Sufi discourse, you know, um, you know uh, of those, um, character refinement. Sometimes we think of Kalam theology and the theological discussions, which of course are relevant to your work. Others would want to go for the um, Quranic discourse when they're thinking of Islamic ethics and this obvious, you know, um, fundamental, in my view, ethical messages within the Quran. But as a legal scholar, all right, what does the study of law bring to our understanding of ethics in Islam? Well, I think, I think we have to keep in mind, and, and this isn't just about Islamic law. I mean, think about any legal system. Law has the ability to be coercive. Certainly for medieval Muslim jurists writing about law, they imagined a sovereign empire ruled by an imam or a caliph or some sort of figure. And so there was always a sense among Muslim jurists that they were writing law with an eye toward it being enforced. So when we think about law's approach to ethics, it's always couched in the context of coercion, force, legitimate claims of force on your liberty, on your body, on your person. And that's gonna be different than when you're, for instance, in the field of theology perhaps, or in the field of Sufism, where the state, in it, or the state or the regime or the imamate, whatever you wanna call the political formation of the day, when you don't have that coercive element, it changes the nature of the ethical conversation. So to me, law is very much tied to the relationship of the individual, to the regimes in power, to communities of identity, vis-a-vis -vis that regime in power and so on. And I think that's a different and distinctive angle that law brings that you don't see from other vantage points. Okay, brilliant, yeah. And in terms of this, um, you know, the, this, this diversity of approaches, so saying, okay, this um, engagement in that we, 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 that we see in these discourses of fiqh, or uh, the, the writings of the jurists with, with this assumption of, that you know, it's relevant to coercive force, you know, and hence this legal lens. Um, and here maybe we're using legal in the, kind of an, in a modern Euro-American uh, sense. Is that fair yeah. to say? Fair enough. Fair enough. Yes. No, there's definitely a sense in which we need to be careful about how we're thinking about law, right? So, you know, on the one hand, when we're thinking about law today, we're thinking of the modern state and its various apparatuses of 
coercion dominance, but also provision, right? It's also a caring for the welfare of the people, right? Through distributive mechanisms. In the, in the historical tradition, you didn't have this idea of the centralized state. You had delegates of the imam or the caliph or the sultan who would adjudicate matters, who would resolve issues in local contexts, and they would act in the name of that particular ruler. But there was still a sense that we didn't have this sort of centralized sense of bureaucratic organization. But in my own writings, more recently than the one we're writing about today, there is an imaginary around a regime that's organized administratively with local power and, and, and structures in place. So we do have that sense, at least in the medieval imagination. Um, but again, when we're thinking about natural law or ethics in relationship to law, then you know we're also thinking in the kind of, in the way that oftentimes many lawyers do think, right? We think about distinctions, divisions, which differentiations matter um, in, in a variety of consequences, so, or variety of circumstances. So I do think that there are, and that there are some shared elements among different legal traditions, even across time and place, but we do have to control for our presentism when we think about what is law. Brilliant. All right. So that kind of, you mentioned the word natural law, which is where I want to go. Okay. So of course we want to focus our conversation around this um, 2010 um, text, which was of course very useful to me. It was published at a time when I was writing my own dissertation um, and it's titled Islamic Natural Law Theories, published by Oxford University Press. So before we get into some of the kind of um, meat of, you know, your core thesis in the book, you use this category natural law, yeah. all right, which is a category of analysis taken, as you put it, from um, legal philosophy or Euro, uh, you know, American legal yeah. philosophy. So before we get into it, what do you mean by natural law? Well, okay, at least in this book. It's a great question. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, the book does get criticized for using this category that comes out of really the Latin Christian tradition, um, really associated with Thomas Aquinas. And so is it even fair to talk about natural law in this way, you know, locating it within the Islamic tradition or locating a version of it within the Islamic tradition? And there's two ways to address the question. First is, how are we defining natural law? Um, oftentimes we use phrases, laws of nature and natural law as synonyms. And I'm not doing that. Laws of nature have a different sort of orientation with naturalistic philosophy. Natural law has a slightly different variation, uh, focusing on core issues around reason and authority. So part of the challenge that we have is on the one hand, can we talk comparatively across legal traditions? That's one. If we argue that we cannot, and Islamic law is so fundamentally distinct that we cannot use these sorts of categories, then we have to acknowledge that Islamic law is not subject to the comparative process as academics and is so unique, so exceptional that it's outside the realm of these other legal traditions. The worry I have with that is that kind of perpetuates up the Orientalist exercise in the past, which also rendered the Islamic so exceptional. So I'm a little hesitant to just cast away the possibilities of comparativism. Number two, the issue isn't whether in the title I'm using it and aping another tradition. The idea is how do I use it? How do I define it in the context of the study? And for purposes of comparison and engagement across traditions. And so for me, at its base, one of the big questions of natural law theorists historically and in Europe has been what is the role of reason in a context of a divinely revealed religious tradition? What's the role of reason in developing law? And that's not 
one that's not a unique conversation to Europe. It's a conversation that has occurred in other religious traditions and across different historical periods. So when you use natural law to capture this core idea of reason and reason revelation and the role of reason in articulating law, it's actually not alien to the Islamic tradition. It's actually robustly within the Usul al-Fiqh tradition on the Sunni side that I, that I looked at. So there's a, those are the two reasons why I think that it's a, it's a relevant term. And the third reason is that, as it turns out, a conception of nature did in fact animate the jurists themselves as they were talking about these, these theories of reason and revelation. So it's not exactly an inappropriate terminology when we look at the historical tradition uh, at the end of the day. So those are the sort of the three core arguments as to why I think the term is appropriate, but I take the criticism and I understand where it's coming from. Sure. All right. Brilliant. So, um, so you're, you're, you're flagging up the importance and I would agree with you, you know, the necessity of us using at least some comparative, some comparative framework where we can speak beyond our own traditions, you know, and engage, although we maybe need to recognize, you know, the limits that that imposes. All right. Yeah. And then, um, as I understood it, flagging up, okay, your use of natural, this category of natural laws, focusing on the questions of reason. Yes. So if I could push you to just kind of elaborate a little bit further, because of course you get into that, you know, is it, you know, again, another way that some might, um, you know, within the context of philosophy of law, think about the debates between natural law and positivism is that these are a question about, you know, and um, the relationship between law and morality. So it's particularly with us in our context of Islamic ethics. Yeah. You know, do you want to say something about that? You know, how we might yeah, also yeah. frame this as a question about law and morality? Yeah. So think about it this way. You know, if you if you have if you adopt a view of law that wants to limit its scope, then you're going to adopt an interpretive framework or an ethical framework around legal interpretation that is restrictive, that wants to, in fact, limit the scope of law, and you ultimately maximize the scope of individual freedom from law, its extensions. The moment you say, I can reason to the law, you also allow the possibility of adding new legal orders. And in a religious tradition like Islam, where there's a theory of a divine legislator, you have the added theological concern of, if I'm coming up with a rationally determined orientation towards law, am I violating God's supremacy? Am I violating God's omnipotence? Am I somehow intruding on the divine project that is lawmaking? So these are two concerns that I think on the one hand, integrate theology and Islamic law together because those do become intertwined elements within the genre of literature that I'm looking at. But at the same time, they raise political concerns around, around you know, again, keeping in mind that when we think about law, we're also thinking about coercive force. And so the moment you open law to the possibilities of reasoned deliberation, you open the ambit of law. You create more possibilities of law, in which case you also potentially limit freedom. Um, one might argue you don't necessarily limit freedom. You also enable the possibility of resource distribution. You enable the possibility of new social welfare mechanisms. You, make, you may make possible the, the, the options of greater social welfare engagement. So there's, there's, a, there's an ethical dimension in this idea of reason because the moment you allow for the possibility of more law and you tie it to the issue of coercion, you have to ask yourself, law to what end? Mm 
law with what end towards human fulfillment? And that's the big core concern that I have in a lot of the work is how do you maximize the possibilities of human fulfillment at the individual and collective level through law or the restriction of law? Okay, brilliant. All right, so you've kind of taken us in towards helping us think um, about you know the purposes of law, yeah, and how and how that relates then to our jurisprudential methods and theories. So as soon as we're talking about issues about purpose of law, this becomes, as you've pointed, theological questions. And one of the things, although and you've kind of alluded to some of the criticism that the work has has received, you know, although you know some of the critics were looking for more nuance, you know, and uh, you know about the differences within the different um, groups. And um, which we'll speak about, you know, that you kind of identify. I think one of the great things that you do, you know, um, in terms of the time that the book was published, because scholarship as its nature is, as it moves on, is you kind of to somewhat extent problematize this binary between the Mu'tazili approaches and the Ash'ari approaches when it comes to the use of reason, okay, in um, jurisprudential theory. And yeah. you talk about the hard natural law yeah. and the soft natural law. So do you want to just give us, just unflash that a little bit so we can, um, you know, take no, through some of the core cool things that you want to say in the book? Well, you know, first, let me also preface for your, for the audience. I mean, I know that I'm speaking to the AMI. And so most of the work that I, I survey, the medieval historical tradition I look at is from the Sunni side. And so I want to be mindful of that, you know, for an audience that of yours, and I just want to make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm really straightforward with what is the, what are the sources that I'm looking at? And within the Sunni Islamic tradition, as many will may, may or may not already know, the question of reason and its possi the possibilities of reason gets framed in theological terms with the Mu'tazilis as these rationalists that are deemed by the, you know, by the 9th, 10th century to be heterodox, and the Ash'aris who take a, a, a much more restrictive view on theology, um, I mean, sorry, a more restrictive view on reason as becoming ultimately versions of Sunni orthodoxy. And as many know, you know, theology becomes the, the dividing line of legitimate, illegitimate um, inclusion and exclusion, and oftentimes quite violently so. And so when, we've, when we have historically talked about reason, if you look in the literature on this, it gets relegated into the realm of theology. Part of what makes um, the book a bit controversial is I suggest that theology, these theological categorizations overdetermine the political implications of reason. Like if theology becomes who gets to be in and out, then there's a, a political implication with the question of reason. Mm -hmm. What if I take the politics away? What if I no longer cast this in theological terms, but instead going to law, I can show that people who are Mu'tazli theologically and people who were Ash'ari theologically what if they got to the same position on reason when it comes to law? Have mm -hmm. I just done an end run around theological positions? Mm -hmm. Now you can imagine that that's gonna upset some folks. If you're committed to a particular view of Sunni orthodoxy, that's gonna be upsetting, right? If I'm showing that my Al-Ghazali, the proponent of a very Ash'ari voluntarist idea, uh, and and let, let me back up for a second. So, you know, what exactly is at stake? Like, what are the Mu'tazilis and the Ash'aris saying, right? The Mu'tazilis would argue that, that, um, that the justice of God is something that we can reason to. And that, that in, in a sense, we, we can say that God doesn't do evil. So if uh, we could say, so for instance, we could say, is lying bad? 
And the Mu'tazilis would reason to why it would be bad. The Ashadis would have said something to the effect of whatever God decides is bad, in which case, if God decides lying is bad, then it's bad. But if God decides lying is good, then it's good. It's not for us to reason to that. It's not for us to come up with a rational analysis about that. And you can imagine then this line of on, on rationality taking two theological orientations. What I'm able to show with hard and soft natural law theories is that many jurists um, who were Mu'tazili inclined would argue to reason using Mu'tazili first principles to say, yes, we can reason to God's law as a presumptive matter unless there's a source text like from the Quran or Hadith that negates this rational conclusion. But controversially, what I'm also able to show is that my Ashadi theologians, when they reasoned about law, they also said, well, it looks like we can do the same thing too. We can also reason from nature, arguing that, again, the big, the big, the big question theologically was, does God create creation for harm or for good? And since God wouldn't do so out of a sense of, he wouldn't do so, that would be folly, the Mu'tazlis would argue. Um, it must be for some positive good. If is it for God or for other human beings, the Mu'tazlis would say, well, God is not in need of these things, so it must be for us. Therefore, they infused nature with value. So this is the, the fact and value dichotomy. Oftentimes in the naturalistic fallacy that we've inherited post-enlightenment, we separate the is and the ought, but pre-enlightenment, we didn't. And this was a version of that. The Ashadis and Ashadi-inclined jurists would say instead, they wouldn't say that we could reason from the natural order of things because it's inherently good. But what they did say is, to respect God's will, we will look at the world of nature. As it turns out, nature does pose a net benefit to humanity. Why? Because of God's grace, his rahma, his mercy. God could change his mercy. He could change his graciousness about nature, but there's no evidence that he has. So therefore, we will presume that nature offers us a net benefit and get to the same position as my Mu'tazli inclined jurists. Now, I, I, I define these two different camps as hard and soft natural law theorists because they're both arguing from nature. They're both allowing the possibility of reason to, to, to determine legal outcomes. One assumes that nature is a net benefit, period. Others suggest that nature is a net benefit until we're shown otherwise based on God's will. But in the end, they get to the same place. So law provides this end run around theology. And so on the one hand, it's exciting because we can distinguish between the disciplines of kalam and law. And that to me is an important contribution of, natu of Islamic natural law theories is that it centers the legal orientation to the question of reason and separates it from the theological. But it's also the most dangerous for some because if you're committed to a particular version of Sunni orthodoxy, I've just subverted it, or I've created a mechanism to show that the major proponents often relied upon Al-Ghazali and others to argue for Sunni orthodoxy weren't exactly as, as, a, as austere on the issue of reason as many would think they are. And that may seem dangerous to some because suddenly I've collapsed 
Ashariya Mu'tazali possibilities. And that's that's I guess there's a there's a there's a flip side to that as well, that you know, the uh, you know, that we see in some, you know, modernist writing that a revival of Mu'tazali theology can, you know, lead to a, a revamping of legal positions. Yeah. No, Again, at the same time, you, you at the same time, although maybe not something I don't recall whether you emphasized it or not. The flip side of that is to show that okay, these Mu'tazali theological assumptions, which of course Shia twelve or Shia theology um, shares on the whole when it comes to these questions of uh, of reason and God's justice, doesn't lead to a radically different legal system. No, it doesn't. And so you can imagine then. I mean, think of our political environment in which. There's a strong policing of Sunnism vis-a-vis Shiism in, the, in, in terms of Gulf politics, for instance. If we were to suddenly show that there's a shared legal orientation towards reason, the sectarian divisions begin to dismantle, don't begin to be as significant as they have been thus far. Um, so you can imagine like the political implications of an argument like this. I will be honest, I, had, I wasn't thinking about this when I decided I was gonna write about Islamic natural law theories. I just thought it was kind of a cool topic. Um, I stumbled upon it really by accident, um, but it's been such a generative space. What, what I will tell you is that one of, the, one of the things that I've, one of the conversations I have had is for those who do turn to Mu'tazili theology today to think about reforms and reflecting on Islamic law, part of the argument I make is you don't need to go there mm. because to be Mu'tazili is in fact to seem heterodox in many Sunni societies, that in fact, why run the risk? If you simply frame it in a legal manner, you don't run the risk of of playing into Sunni notions of heterodoxy. You stay well within the fold of, of, of reasonability, but you change the register of the ethical question, right? The ethical issue is no longer framed politically, I mean, no longer framed theologically, with its political connotations, but it's framed legally and can therefore take on a much more technocratic orientation. And so the costs of changes seem less. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Okay, so I think, um, you know, as you're pointing to there, it's, it's becoming increasingly established that there's this, you know, seeds of moral rationalism across the Sunni schools, you know, which don't have to be framed in a, in a Mu'tazili theological-like um, Absolutely. framework. But if I could just, uh, if we could just help unpack some of the, again, some of the core things you're trying to say um, before using this platform that you've given me, you know, with this really interesting conversation as it's going. Um, so in terms of the, if you like, the soft natural law theorists, yeah. the Ash'ari theologians, who of course have this um, voluntarist framework. Mm-hmm. So um, good is, you know, whatever God commands, mm-hmm. okay? And effectively in theory, reduced to his revelatory instructions which would kind of give us a sense that, you know, reason or nature, as you're putting it, you know, has a, um, a, a limited or exceptionally curtailed role, right? But it was very important for these jurists to, um, pragmatically, they required some scope for natural reasoning, yeah. you know, to even make sense of that, um, you know, uh, methods like kias and analogy and to have a functional legal system. Is, is that is that what you're is that fair to say? Yeah, they, they did. And in fact, even as these as these voluntarist theologians created their soft natural law, they they on the one hand recognized, yes, we need to nonetheless come up with ways 
to expand its scope. Now, here's the ethical question. Expand its scope to what end, to what purpose, right? And many of them came up with this theory, this Maqasid theory, which has become very significant for many, particularly in, in, a, in, 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 a, in areas of, of thinking about Islamic ethics, Islamic reform, Islam and human rights. What you find is this medieval turn to Maqasid among voluntarist soft natural jurists. And the idea was that, look, we know that, yes, we can allow the possibility of reason, but, and here Al-Ghazali says this in his Al-Mustasfa, very significantly, he says, but we don't want to look like the Mu'tazila in this. So he knows, right? He knows that he's making a move that looks very similar to the move that he also castigates as heterodox. But he gets to the same point, he says, but to avoid looking like the Mu'tazila in this area, let's come up with a mechanism to control and limit the scope of reason and he is thinking in that sense ethically, right? He wants to be mindful of a commitment to God, a commitment to God's omnipotence, not overstepping the bounds of human capacity. But he also wants to restrain, you know, the willy-nilliness of, 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 human, of human frailties. So he comes up with the Maqasid model. This isn't just him. Others have the same model. And he identifies the five purposes to which law must be oriented, the protection of life, lineage, property, mind, and religion. He comes up with a model of maslaha, that is reasoning based on public interests that aren't specified in a text source or aren't negated in a text source. And then he says these public interests, these maslaha, can be graded on a three-part scale as necessary, uh, uh, needed, or some sort of ameliorative role, right? And he says, look, a maslaha that fulfills one of these five purposes and at the highest level of necessity once we argue to that rationally, we can then say that is effectively the law of God. If God had, if God were to have litigated or legislated, that's what he would have legislated. Yeah. So what's interesting is he still, he and others come up with the Maqasid model. But it's really important for us to recognize that today many people will take Maqasid and suggest it's a theory of thinking proactively about Islam or Islamic law, or about a new form of Islamic law, and a kind of almost neo-Ijtihad moment. And the argument that I make is, well, actually, the problem with that new reformist approach to Maqasid is, Maqasid was never designed to be expansive. Maqasid wasn't designed to enable reason. From its very origins, it was designed to limit the scope of reason. And so it built into it is a limiting device. Now, you might agree with the limiting devices. You might say those limiting devices fulfill key ethical commitments drawn from both theology and a, dis, and a sus, suspiciousness about the coerciveness of the state. But if politically you're inclined to think the state can be a progressive agent of redistribution, change, and social welfare, then you might see Maqasid as far too restrictive in any sort of reformative venture. You might want the state to come in and redistribute resources. You might want a more uh, egalitarian society that's not currently set up, but to do so requires a lot of innovation. I don't think Maqasid gets you there because it was never designed to do that. Yes, yeah. So I think that's brilliant. I think that was a, a clearly something which, um, you know, you explicate very clearly in the book. Thank you. So there's this tension between um, those voluntarist 
soft natural jurists and their jurisprudential endeavors. And that the Maqasid Maslaha framework, at least uh, as explicated by Ghazali, was done to limit the scope of reason, as you've just put it, okay, rather than it to be a resource to reread fiqh and reread scripture. Of course, this is only applicable where scripture is silent, for one. Okay, and secondly, it's with these very, very high standards which you've just set out. So what do you think then about this tension that, um, that, that you flag up in some modernist progressive thinking, which is making recourse to um, making recourse to Makassid models? Of course, there are other Makassid models. You, talk, you, you deal with Tufi, for example, and Shatabi, who maybe don't have the same extent of theological tension as Ghazali has. But nevertheless, typically we might find people saying, yeah, we've got this Makassid model, Shatibi, uh, Ghazali, they'll list the whole whole array, um, array of thinkers off and say, okay, so we want to focus on the, the spirit, the objectives rather than the details, right? So there's theological incoherence here in my view. I mean, you say attention, I think it's actually incoherence. Now, um, the, the, so the, the, well, on one hand, we have that tension. On the other hand, aren't you now saying theology is important? Because earlier on in this conversation, you said we can solve the theological issues if we just focus on the legal. Well, but we've got tensions in law if we don't deal with theology. Yeah, no, and I think that I think it's fair to say that. Look, we we what we would see in the in the pre-modern tradition as sort of the theologies that undergird law. An analog today might be the political ideologies that undergird law today. You can imagine from the left to the right conservative to the liberal, right? Uh, you'll have different economic theories of redistribution versus laissez-faire, right? I mean, these aren't religious, these aren't theological, but they serve a kind of theoretical framing for what kind of law can emanate. And so what I would simply say is, looking at my, my pre-modern tradition, these theologies were, in, were framing devices, were vehicles by which people came to and framed their approach to what is the purpose of law? What does law do as an instrument? Because let's be frank, law is a tool that you do things with. And so if you think of law in that way, then the theology sets out the terms, sets out the purposes, sets out the longer term vision that the law may not itself be focusing on. Um, not unlike you know, conservative economic theory will set out a vision about what the market should look like and therefore what kinds of legal environment we should have now to get to a certain market relation in the future. So in that sense, I'm not surprised that theology is part of the Islamic legal tradition. I would be actually surprised if it weren't. But the point for me is that they are separable analytically. And to analytically separate them is also then to identify where certain questions make sense, where certain questions don't make sense, and where those possible linkages and crossovers are. Um, but it's also, for the purposes of natural law, it's, it's fascinating to see how even theology has to come up with a certain limit. Because at the end of the day, we do live in this world. We do live together with other human beings. And the ethical questions that natural law anticipates cannot all be addressed by simply thinking about only God, because ultimately we're here now in this world. And to do that, we need to figure out how to relate to one another. And the situations that arise between us are infinite. And so we can't structure the law in a way that doesn't allow us to address those problems. If we are, of course, to have 
a well-ordered society. Brilliant. Okay, excellent. So I think maybe just a kind of couple of last, if you would, if you would allow me, you know, please to just, um, you know, this, and I want to take us back to just thinking about, you know, you're, of course, as a legal scholar, and you're coming from this, um, and you've, you've articulated it very clearly, you know, you know, why um, this, this um, approach is important and useful for understanding, you know, the hi historical tradition and its relevance today. And so in this work, you do it through natural law. In other works, you look at this uh, of the rule of law as a concept in your work on religious pluralism. Um, but actually, my question is, it comes back to that comparative uh, question, no? is that, yes, we need this. Um, and I agree with you, you know, that it's useful to have analytical categories which can speak beyond um, you know, a particular exceptionalizing tradition, which I think is problematic. And you, you said it before. Um, at the same time, it's almost like a double edged sword, mm. right? at least to me because it imposes certain limits, okay, right? And, and so one of the challenges which is a light, which at least I see is that, that when we engage with thick and the jurisprudential traditions exclusively through the lens of law, okay, does this cause a problem? Because sitting in Canada, okay, or here in the UK, and arguably throughout the so-called Muslim world as well, most people's everyday practice of fiqh and, and those things which are informed by the jurist deliberations of a sort of fiqh are coercive only in the sense of their relationship with God. Yeah, no, that's fair. No, and I think that, you know, what's really important for us to think about is that, is that oftentimes, and this is, I think, a, a limitation in the context, even of sort of the, the way we've studied Islam in the academy today, um, and in another piece that I wrote more recently, one of the arguments I make is that we do a disservice in the study of Islam if we don't also front the fact that the modern state has fundamentally changed the way we relate to each other, even through this historical tradition. And so there's a politics of the modern state that we can't just simply assume existed in the past. So for instance, I'm always mindful, I read a lot of sources and secondary sources on, on early Islam. And historians talk about the early Islamic caliphate and they call it a state. And you've probably seen this as well. You can see it in 20th century literature on, 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 on early Islamic history. But if we think of the state as a very specific kind of political form, then part of the challenge for us as we think about Islamic law and we read fiqh, is to recognize that fiqh was imagined as part of a, as a sovereign enterprise and contributing to a sovereign enterprise, but a sovereign enterprise that was not what we understand sovereignty to be today. Mm -hmm. And so as long as we maintain an awareness in our political imaginary that we're reading fiqh for a very different political form, then we also can perhaps better understand the nuances that come out in certain fiqh analysis that don't quite resonate today in the same way, that don't feel and have the same coercive sensibilities that they might have had at one time, and vice versa. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. All right, really, really appreciate your time. Oh, and I can't recommend the book enough. Like I said, it was very useful to me at the time I was writing my dissertation. The subsequent work of Professor Emon is, um, you know, again, exceptional. There's a related text, which I'll flag up here, 
you know, which was the trialogue, which we didn't talk about, but actually natural law as a comparative framework or a comparative lens across religious traditions um, has also proved very, very useful. Um, he's at the cutting edge of a number of projects in, in Canada and the University of Toronto. And so I would commend his work to everybody. I thank you again for your time, Professor, and hope we can host you in the UK at the Al-Mahdi Institute. And you can see the library, which is put on these shows, um, you know, in person soon. I look forward to it, inshallah. Thank you so much for having me.